right, like Jordan said, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We will get to that in just a little bit. So if you have been with us for a while, you know that um, we prefer to walk through uh, books of the Bible, big passages of Scripture. And so we have been in the book of John. Uh, we have made it through what, roughly eight and a half chapters in nine months, so that's, that's a pretty good pace that we're on. So we are, we're going to take a little pause right now uh, because we are going to talk about who is the church, and so this is very relevant to our faith. Um, as we talk about the church, our understanding of the church informs what we know of our faith. It impacts our theology it impacts what we believe, and as we talk about the church, it impacts our sanctification, how we believe that we grow in Christ, it impacts our fellowship, how we interact with fellow believers, and it also impacts our ministry, how we view us taking the gospel to the lost. So we want to look at who is the church, and we want to know that this is a very timely study, especially as we go through a pastoral transition here at The Journey. Um, but I want you to know this isn't just something that we thought, okay, we have a transition. Let's talk about the church and what it's going to look like going forward. But I want you to know that this has been in the works for months, that we have had this on the calendar. And so we really do believe that this is part of God's sovereignty for the church, that this is intentional for us, that God, he's not surprised that we're going through a transition, but he knows exactly what we need. And so this I hope we would view this as an opportunity for us to prepare our hearts for where God is planning to lead us as he reveals his will to us here at the church. So we are talking about who is the church. And so as we start off, we want to make sure that we have a right definition, a right understanding of the church. Because uh, in many, many different ways... Right, our understanding, what we think about something informs our understanding. And I want to give you just a quick example. And so how many, how many wise men were there at the Christmas story, at Jesus' birth? How many? See, most of us would say three. And the truth is we really don't know, right? But that understanding comes from we, there are three gifts. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we sing the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, right? And so that naturally kind of lends itself to us believing that there are three wise men. But the truth of the matter is we don't really know. It just says that there's more than one, that there are wise men that came and visited. But even more than that, at Christmas time, we go to Hobby Lobby and we buy a nativity set, right? So we set our nativity set out on the mantle. And so we start with baby Jesus there in the middle and we put Mary and Joseph behind them, and then we put the animals and the, and the shepherds right there with them. And then where do we put the wise men? We put the wise men right there with them. But do you know where the wise men actually were at that time? They didn't show up until two, two years later. So if you want to be geographically correct, when you set up your nativity scene this year, okay, you need to take your wise men... And you need to go put them in your neighbor's yard across the street because that's the scale that we're looking at. But do you see how something so simple as that, it informs our understanding of the Christmas story? We just assume that when we talk about the wise men that they were there at Jesus' birth. 
right? But that's not always the case. And so with the church, we also want to understand what it is that God's really meaning when he talks about the church. Because a lot of us, we have baggage when it comes to the church. We may have been hurt by a church. We may have had a bad experience. But we don't want to let those experiences inform what our understanding of the church is. And so as we understand the church, we want to understand what it is, but we also want to understand what it is not. And so just off the, off the bat, we want to understand that the church, when God speaks of the church in Scripture, that he's not talking about a physical location or a building. He's not talking about 9835 Old Bainbridge Trail. That's a mouthful. Um, or he's not talking about First Baptist Church, any town, any town USA. Right? It's not a specific location. And even if you go back to the founding of this country when the Puritans started here, the place where they gathered for worship, they didn't even call it a church. They called it a meeting house because they understood that the church is not confined to just one physical location. The church is also, we want to make sure that it, we don't view it as a social organization or uh, just a social club, something that's voluntary, that we join because it aligns with what we believe, what we're enthusiastic about. And so uh, I'll go because it's my hobby. I'll go because I'm interested in it. But if I'm no longer interested in it, eh, I don't need it. And so a couple years ago, I was a member of the Rotary Club. Uh, I don't know if there's any fellow Rotarians in here. Um, But I went for a very specific purpose. I went because it was a networking opportunity for my job. And also because our local chapter where I was at, they gave scholarships to the college that I worked at. And so my job was to make sure that they continued to give scholarships to the college. So, but I no longer work there, so I don't go to Rotary anymore. It doesn't align with my interests. It doesn't align with my hobbies. They also met at Ponderosa. And if you are the type of person that likes Ponderosa, we cannot be friends. (laughs) Because that would demonstrate that you have bad judgment and I don't hang out with people that exercise bad judgment. So, but I no longer go to Rotary. It doesn't align with what I'm interested in. The church, though, is also, it's not a service provider. A lot of times we come into church thinking that it's going to meet some need that we have, whether that's emotional, whether that's spiritual, whether that's some physical need. And so while the church, while we do meet needs, that's not the sole purpose for why we're here. The church is so much more than that. And lastly, the church, it's not even a place where we, a friendly group of people with a shared interest in the divine, come to talk about God. So while we talk about God here, we want to know that it is so much more than that. It's more than just an intellectual discussion on God. So when we talk about the church, we want to understand what the Bible says about that. And so the Bible uses all sorts of biblical analogies for the church. And so I'm sure we're familiar with a lot of these. It talks about the church being a body. It talks about it being a flock of sheep or a vine in the branches or a marriage, right? And so we have an entire scripture full of these physical descriptions in which God uses those to communicate a spiritual reality. And we're familiar with this. We've talked a lot about this through the book of John. 
that God has designed these things that we see in our life. He's designed them in such a way to point us to something better. And all of them point to the important reality in order to help us understand how God relates to his people. And so I want to give us a couple good definitions that kind of encapsulate all of these analogies. So the first one I want us to look at, this will be on the screen. This is from Mark Dever as he defines what the church is. He says that according to the New Testament, the church is primarily a body of people. And so we want to we lock on that. It is a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so the Gospel Coalition gives another good definition. It says the church is the new covenant people of God. Again, that, that we're talking about a who, not a what. It is a new covenant people of God rooted in the promises to Israel and inaugurated by the Holy Spirit, which refers both to all believers in Jesus Christ, both living and dead, and to local gatherings of believers. So in those definitions, we see a couple common elements. So first off, we see that there is genuine faith in Christ. And so we're referring to a group of people, and the one thing that those people hold in common is they have genuine faith in Christ, a true saving, a true uh, relational faith, a walking with the Lord. But secondly, as we see this body of believers, we see this community, and it's, it's bigger than just time and space because there's an eternal aspect that it's all believers, both living and dead, but it's also contemporary in that we as a church, we are gathered here in community, but it's also global and it's local. It's all believers all across the globe. That is the church, but it is also our local gathering here. So today, as we talk about the church, we're going to focus on the eternal and global aspects of the church. This is what we would call the universal church, or the big C church, the capital C church. And so we must understand God's purpose in the universal church in order to understand our role, our place in both the global church, but also in our local church. And and so in order to understand that, we're going to talk a lot today about submission. This is a, a common theme with all of the biblical metaphors that I mentioned just a moment ago. And so all of those, all of those analogies, they're pointing to our submission to the Lord. And so that be, begins the starting point for us. And so in order to understand biblical submission, I want to use another analogy that the Bible uses, and that is citizenship citizenship in an eternal kingdom. And so when we talk about our citizenship, we're talking about our identity, our core identity, who we are. We can't be arbitrary about our citizenship if you think about it. Uh, Us as Americans, we can't just turn off our Americanness and turn it back on when we feel like it. I can't be a citizen now and not be a citizen later, even if I, for some reason, renounce my citizenship, my Americanness always is sticking with me. We can't separate who we are as Americans. And if we go to another country, as Americans, we stick out like sore thumbs. We've, we've told this story before that when we went to Central Asia a couple months ago, we were walking into the bazaar, this big open-air merchant district, 
We don't speak the language, but we're following our friends in. And as we're entering in, this guy, he starts pointing his finger and he's yelling at Jordan. And he's yelling very aggressively. We have no idea what he's saying. And so we're just kind of uncomfortable. And so we continue on our way. And so we get a little bit of ways from him. And we ask our friend, like, hey, what was that about? And he said, oh, that guy knew that you're an American, and he wanted you to call Joe Biden and tell them, tell him to make their people an independent country. And so you see, like, Jordan couldn't escape his Americanness. He stood out like a sore thumb, and mainly because he couldn't grow a beard. Um, <laughs> he's the only person there that didn't have a beard. But, like, that was much different than a Rotary membership. That guy could care less if we were in Rotary International, but he knew that Jordan was an American. Jordan couldn't escape it, and we can't escape our citizenship. So as we talk about our membership in the church, we want to think about our citizenship because it defines who we are. And so Jonathan Lehman, he puts, this, he, he puts it so great. He says, we need to start with the idea of the church as the people of a kingdom or nation, how God's people gather together under his supreme rule. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about citizenship in the kingdom and all throughout scripture. God calls us to be citizens of this kingdom. That his church, his church represents the heavenly kingdom here on earth. That's what the church represents. And so we have a biblical pattern all throughout scripture, of God calling people to himself. He calls people to submit to his authority as king. And so this is what Wayne Grudem says as he points to this pattern that we're going to look at today. He says, Jesus said that he would build his church by calling people to himself. This pattern of church building is a continuation of the process of building the church before Christ came to earth. For in the Old Testament times, God was continually calling his people to himself to be a worshiping assembly before him. Just as the whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament was to assemble together to worship God, so Christians today are called to do the same. So we're going to look at a biblical survey today. We're going to see this process of God calling a people out to himself. Calling, him to f calling us to follow him as king. And so it takes the entire Bible to tell this story. So we're going to go through Genesis, through Revelation. And I know some of you may groan about that. I did a wedding a couple months ago. And so the next day we were here and David Stotler was like, that was a true journey wedding because Chad took us from Genesis through Revelation. So I only had 10 minutes there. I think I have a little bit more time. But we are going to... We are going to get there. So, um, But before we jump in, I want to share one last note on submission because that's what we're really looking at as God calls us out. And so this is what Jonathan Lehman says again. He says, the word submit scares most people today in part because we have seen so much leadership abused, including leadership in churches. Still, throughout Scripture, God reveals that he means authority for our good. And so I'm sure many of us, we have that same feeling when it comes to submission. I know that's a dirty word in our household. If I say submission, my wife 
eye begins to twitch. She gets a tick. She doesn't like that. But that's because we have all of these examples of where we have failed as people as we've tried to exercise authority. But we want to look at God's true and good design for submission, that it's not about our failings. Our failings only point to the better reality of God's perfect submission. And so just because we have messed up submission doesn't mean that God's idea of submission is messed up. So as we look through these passages, we want to look for um, submission in three different areas. Okay, these three areas always manifest itself as God calls us to submit. And so number one, we see that God's abiding presence is always a part of submission. And so God, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't call us to submit in order to chain us down. And so if we think of those abusive um, examples of submission that, that are often thrown out in marriage, where a husband is forcing his wife to submit, He's chaining her down, in essence. And why? So the, the husband can go off and do whatever he wants. But God's not that way with us. He's not trying to chain us down so that he can leave and do whatever he wants. But as he's calling us to submit, he promises that he will be there, that he will never leave us. So that's, that's example number one. So the second thing that we always see as God calls us to submit, is that he calls us out, he sets us apart for a, a better purpose. He is always calling us out to give us something better. That as he calls us to submit, it's not to take something away, but it's always to give us something better. And the last thing that we always see with submission is this missional purpose. That the whole reason God is calling us to submit is so that we would reach out and pull other people along with us. That God is calling not only us, but he's calling other people to himself. And so we want to remember that this is always God's universal purpose for his universal church. That our failures do not nullify or negate the goodness of his promises toward us. So we're going to look at a bunch of different passages today, and we're going to see each of those elements. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We are going to read uh, starting in verse 1. So this is what God's word says. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so flip over to, to chapter 17, just a couple pages to the right. We're going to see God continue this call with Abraham. So chapter 17, verse 1, we're going to read 1 through 7. So now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham. 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your good purpose in calling us to yourself as your people. And so we pray that you would help us today to see your design in placing us in your church. We pray that you would help us to understand what true submission looks like, that you have something infinitely better for us. And so we thank you for your grace that you shower on us. We thank you for your presence here among us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we look at this passage out of Genesis with Abraham, again, we want to look at how we find God's presence. And so we see this in a number of different ways. We say, God, say to Abraham, I will be God to you, that I will be God to your descendants. We see God establish an everlasting covenant with him, that God takes the initiative that this is part of God's plan. It's not because of anything that Abraham has done, but but God takes the initiative and establishes a covenant with him. We see God call Abraham out. God calls Abraham to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave everything that he knows. Because he says, I have something better in store for you. Abraham had a good life, but God said, hey, leave all that behind. Come with me. I'm going to give you something better. And we see that Abraham says that, hey, what, or that God says, walk with me. He says, I'm going to give you a relationship with me. That I'm not just a God that you put on a shelf and that you worship whenever you feel like it, but it's a very relational thing. That God is a better God than all the gods that they knew at that time. He says, walk with me. Be blameless. Follow what I say. And we see God's missional purpose when he tells, when he tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. And more than that, all the families in the earth are going to be blessed in you. And we know the, the rest of the story that that comes through Jesus, that Jesus comes through Abraham and is the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing. That all the way back in Genesis, God is calling a people to himself, and that is always through Jesus. So we're going to skip ahead 400 years. We're going to turn to Exodus 19. So you can turn to Exodus 19. We're going to read chapter, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, or you can catch this on the screen. And so this is what God's word said. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak 
to the people of Israel. So again, we see God's presence. He tells them that I bore you out on eagle's wings, and so that wasn't a literal uh, bearing out. They didn't ride on, on eagles, hop on the eagle's back and fly out, but we see the miraculous deliverance of Israel as God parted the Red Sea, brought them out of Egypt. But he, just, he didn't just bring them out in order to send them on their way to let them wander in the wilderness. He brought them out to himself so that they would be in relationship with him. We see God call them out. He calls them their, his treasured possession among all the peoples that he says that you will be set apart from all the nations, that you will have a better standing in front of me than any other nation, that there's a better purpose. And he reminds them, be faithful to the covenant. Walk with me because I have something better. And we see this missional purpose as he calls them a kingdom of priests. And so we know that as, as they um, head towards the promised land, that God establishes a priesthood among Aaron and his brothers and his descendants. But it's not just those people that will be priests. God says that everyone, every member of the nation is going to be a priest. Because priests, we know they are mediators between God and man. But God says, of all the people, every one of you, you're a priest, you're a kingdom of priests, because Israel is going to be a mediator between God and the nations. That God is going to use the kingdom of Israel in order to point all the nations back to himself. And so this is what John MacArthur says about this. He says, three titles for Israel, the special treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation were given by the Lord to the nation, contingent upon their being an obedient and covenant-keeping nation. And so these titles summarize the divine blessings which such a nation would experience, belonging especially to the Lord. That's that God's abiding presence with them, representing him in the earth. That's that missional purpose. And lastly, being set apart for his purpose, that God has called them out, called them to something better. So turn with me now to Matthew 28. We're going to look at the passage known as the Great Commission. Um, there's tons in the Old Testament, and I have scrapped a whole bunch of that because I know that we're, we're scrapped for time. But we're going to look forward to the New Testament where, where Jesus establishes a better kingdom. And so this will be on the screen as well. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So how do we see God's presence there? We see that, that Jesus has been given all authority, that his resurrection validated his authority, and he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And sometimes we just view that as abstract. We, we're familiar with this passage and we just say, yeah, he's got all authority in heaven and on earth. But think about that for a minute, that that means everything, that he has authority over every single thing. There's nothing that is not under his authority. And that authority is personal. It is over every single person. 
It is over every single believer. It's over you and me. And his authority implies our submission. That's why he can command us to go and do what he says. But at the end, we see that Jesus says that he is always with us. That even though he ascended, he says that my presence is always with you. That we can never escape his never-ending presence. And so God calls us out. He calls us to be a disciple. And so in order for us to go and make disciples, we ourselves have to be disciples. We have to imitate him. He tells us to be obedient to everything that he says. Every last thing is what it translates there. That we are to be obedient. And we are obedient because of that missional purpose, to go and make disciples. Now, somebody might say, well, it doesn't say go and make church members. It doesn't say go make people who are going to belong to a church. But the assumption in the Great Commission, what Jesus is teaching us, the assumption is that it includes preaching the gospel. It includes making converts, starting churches, and living in community with other believers because that's the pattern that we have of Jesus all throughout the New Testament that he went and preached the good news and gathered people to himself and taught people they lived in community. And so we remember that disciples, we imitate the master. And because of that, he asks us, he commands us, rather, to make disciples of the nations. And so this is a new and better kingdom because Jesus is, is speaking to primarily a group of Jewish guys at this moment. He's been ministering in the nation of Israel. And that nation thought, hey, salvation is reserved only for us. That we're the only ones that God called us, just as we've seen earlier. He only called us. But Jesus is saying, no, this is a new and better kingdom. And so we're going to go and we're going to get everybody. That it's not just for us here in America, but it's a better kingdom we are called to make disciples of all the nations. And so this is what Jonathan Lehman says about this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and he gave his church the authority to march on the nations. And so that's what Jesus has commanded us to do as a church, sending us out on mission. So skip over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the beginning of the church as these early believers take what Jesus has said and they put it into practice. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So again, we see God's presence among the people. There was a sense of awe of God working in their midst, that God validated this new kingdom through the signs that the apostles performed. We see God calling out people through, through Peter as Peter calls the people to repentance. He calls them to repentance, and that's not just turning from sin, but it's giving them a change of heart and a change of purpose. They're turning from sin, and not just to leave sin, but they are turning from sin in order to pursue Jesus. We see the people, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted in prayer. They're devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to meeting the needs of others. And this is a radical, a radical life change. It's a radical change in how they interacted with the world. No one else ever, ever acted in the way that these early Christians did. They have given their life to something new. They have single-minded devotion to this new kingdom. And we see the missional purpose play out in that God calls people to himself. Peter says that the promise is for you, it's for your children, those who are close to us, but it is even for those who are way far off. The people who we may think they don't deserve to come to the Lord. They're not good enough to come. But Jesus says, no, the promise is for them even. Everyone, those who are far off, come on. And this is more than just belonging to a church, that Peter is inviting them to a relationship with the Lord, and the Lord adds to their number every day. So flip over to Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to turn to chapter 3. Again, this will be on the screen. So Philippians 3, verse 18 says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And so there Paul is describing the world. But for us, he says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject there's that submission, to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, Paul, in writing this, he's, he's linking back and forth. And so this passage is linked to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and this will be on the screen as well. And so these two, these two passages go together. And Paul says there in, in 127, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So again, we see God's presence. He tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And that's not some future thing that we have to wait for. But God, Paul, is saying that our citizenship right now is in heaven. 
where God subjects all things to himself. We see Paul calling us out. He tells us to literally live as citizens. That's what that translates. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens that our primary allegiance is to God and to his kingdom, not anything else that we have in this world. There's nothing else that takes primary allegiance over the Lord. That's the main command here. And he tells us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that term worthy, that, that, that means same weight. And so we know the gospel is the most valuable thing that we as believers can hold on to. And so Paul is telling us, live a life worthy of that. That we don't live a life haphazard. We don't live our life however we want. We don't buy a Ferrari and then drive it down a dirt road, right? But that's what the Lord has given us, that he's given us the gospel. Don't chase after the earthly things. And we see this missional purpose. As, as Paul tells us that we are to strive for the faith of the gospel. And that there is a plural command. It's talking about community. He's writing to this group of believers. And the picture here is that of an army that's not retreating. That they are locked arm in arm. And they are advancing. And they are digging in their heels. They are standing firm. And why are they doing that? So that they can advance the cause of the gospel, to bring others, that they are not alarmed by what this world is throwing at them. They've dug their heels in in order to bring others to themselves. So flip over now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. This is what Peter writes. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So again, we see God's presence. As Peter says, that as we come to him, and what that's really communicating is an intentional, a remaining in him, a remaining in the Lord, that we are there to remain in him in ongoing, intimate fellowship. That's what Peter's communicating, that as we come to him, he says that we are being built into a spiritual house. And again, he's linking this back to Exodus 19, what we've already seen. 
that we are being built into a spiritual house. You'll remember that the Israelites, they were commanded to build the temple. That's a place where God's presence would dwell physically among the people. Peter is saying that God is saving us for something better. That we are being built into that spiritual house because his presence dwells inside of us. And he's telling us that the Old Testament foreshadowed God dwelling with his people. God's presence is with us. We see Peter call us out. He tells us that we are sojourners and exiles, that we are not of this world, that we are called from darkness into his marvelous light, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That we are a new people in the church, that we are a new people and we are defined by Jesus and Jesus only. It's not about our race. It's not about our ethnicity. It's not about any other characteristic that we are defined by Jesus, that we are royal, that we are under the dominion of the Lord as our king. And all of this points that the church is the new Israel. So what God was doing back in the Old Testament and calling the Israelites to himself The church is the fulfillment of that. That We talked about the Old Testament priests. They were to mediate God's blessings to the nations. But now God has called us as his church to mediate his grace and his truth to the nations. And we see that as Peter says that our purpose, our entire purpose, is to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. That when we come in contact with unbelievers, that we would live in such a way, live in such a way that they would glorify God because of us. That's what God has called us to be as his church. So as we talk about application, it's really pretty simple. Are we the church that God has called us to be? That from a practical standpoint, both as a group, as a local body of believers, but also as individuals, are we living in the presence of God? Are we living in active relationship with him? Are we called out? Have we been separated from the world? Are are our lives markedly different from those who don't darken our doors. A lot of us have really good lives, and that's a good thing, that God has blessed us in that way. But do we live in such a way knowing that God has called us to something better, even that our lives that we have now, that God has called us to something better, that he has something better than this world could offer? Do we stand out in such a way that we look like Americans in a foreign land? Do people know that we have been called out? And are we carrying out the Lord's mission? Are we involved in redemptive relationships? Are we carrying the Lord's gospel to the nations? Are we carrying his blessings to others who don't know him? Because that's the whole purpose of the church. That's why he has called each and every one of us. Hopefully that's why we have gathered here, that we are a worshiping assembly before him. 
But all of this points to something better. All of this points to the final consummation of God's purpose of calling us as a people to himself. And so we want to end in Revelation, like I said. Revelation 21. This is why God has called us. This is the whole purpose in God building his church on this earth. He's called us and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what we're looking forward to. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God's dwelling will be with man, that our faith won't be faith anymore. It'll be sight. That we will gather with men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That we will be his people and that he will be our God. That is why we gather here. That is the purpose of the church. So that's how we want to live. We don't want to let the world define who we are as a church if we've been harmed or abused or suffered at the hands of the church. But we want to look at what God has called us to. So stand and pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your plan that you have revealed through your church. Lord, we expectantly, Lord, we look forward to the day that your dwelling will be with us, that we will see you face to face. But we thank you that your presence is already here among us. God, that you don't sit somewhere far away. But that your presence is here with us as believers. We ask that you continue to call us to yourself. Continue to call us out to something better. Lord, that we would experience the blessings of your grace. That we would take those blessings to others that don't know you. God, we give you all the glory. We ask that you reveal yourself to us now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.